Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson, and we're interviewing exceptional people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is the first chef to have been awarded two Michelin stars for a pub, The Hand and Flowers, but he's just as happy making sausages and mash and buttermilk fried chicken. Tom Kerridge has restaurants in London and Manchester, a clutch of best-selling cookery books, and has helped champion cheap and nutritious food for children with the footballer Marcus Rashford. Working in a restaurant is more than a job. It defines you as a person, like being an artist or an actor or a sportsman, he says. Tom Courage, thank you very much uh, for joining us. And we're actually at one of your pubs in Marlow, The Coach. We are. And we have just been taught how to make chicken Kiev. That's it. I mean, it's, it, <laughs> every day's a school day, yeah? Every day's a school yeah. day. See, that's the thing about food is constant learning. And it is extraordinary here just by the Thames. And you live here with your wife, the sculptor, Beth Cullen Courage, and with your son. And we wanted to know whether you still see cooking very much as a vocation. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. So... It, there's a big difference between being a professional chef and a home cook. Now, home cooks, when they cook, they, they enjoy doing it. They love it. It's good fun. But being a professional chef, there's much more to it than just the food. There's the energy, the atmosphere, the workload, the, the dynamics, the drive. The, the kitchen space is not a normal workspace. You know, it's not like an office space or a shop. And so you have to engage with all of that. And becoming a chef, because... You work mornings and nights, you know, you work lunchtimes, you work weekends, you know. It's more than just a job. It, bec- it is a vocation. It is a way of life. It is something, like you said in the little intro there, that defines you. It is because, you know, the people that stay in the industry and absolutely love the industry and, and be in it for years and years and years is because it's such an exciting, wonderful, eclectic mix of people, opportunities, but it is time-consuming. You don't go to work and then do something else. It is what yeah. you are. You are a chef or you are in the restaurant trade or you are a hotel manager or you are... That is your... It becomes your life. But it's an exciting and incredible life. And are you always trying new recipes? Is that the difference between being a home cook and being a chef? Because I, I just always make the same thing over and over again. No, sometimes... Chefs, we get excited about different things. You know, seasonality is massive. You know, when you eat out as a guest and you walk into a restaurant, you're looking for this time of year, we want asparagus. Mm. You know, you want, you want morel mushrooms. You want, in the winter times, you want slower cooked things. You want braises. You want root vegetables. All of those sort of things. So seasonality, chefs work with seasonality. And you're influenced by trying to push your craft. You know, how do I improve myself? What techniques are there to learn? And it's about getting things right again and again and again 
and again, and small little improvements make a difference. For you know, the Hand of Flowers is the two mission star pub that's down the road. We opened that just over 17 years ago, and there's an omelette dish that's on the menu that's been there, and a creme brulee that's on the dessert menu. They've both been on the a la carte menu for over 17 years now. Everyone talks about, oh, menus must change. They, they don't need to change all the time. They don't. If you think of your favourite high street pizza, if you think of the pizza that you order on a Friday for a takeaway at home, it's the same flavour pizza probably every week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pizza margarita, or I'll have a meat feast, yeah. or I'll have a, like, you know, and the same sort of thing when you order a curry. and you, you Because familiarity yeah. and a, a food that you like and done well that makes you feel comfortable. And so you also have to tick those boxes for guests as well. And we want to take you back to your childhood. And the photos of you are absolutely adorable of this sort of... <laughs> Which um, ones have you got? What, <laughs> what have the team sent you? The, the kind of seven-year-old rugby player, the ones mm. I like best, with your brother. Um, yeah. But it does sound quite tough, riding your bike around the estates and Gloucester. Was, well, was it sort of tough, but also amazing freedom? Yeah, I mean, I look back at what I grew up, and it was absolutely no different to anybody else around there. You know, there was plenty of single-parent families. There was plenty of mums or dads that would go out and have two jobs. There were plenty of people there that were unemployed. And, and there were plenty of kids that were just running around, playing football in a park in the middle of nowhere. Like, it, it, and, and as kids... You don't see that your mum's got no money. You don't see that how hard she's working. You just you just get on with you having have fun with your mates. And, you know, we would go on summer holidays. We were, My mum would take us to the Isle of Wight because it meant that we were getting on a ferry. So it felt like we were going abroad. Right. You know, those sort of yeah. things. So, so we never went without that love and affection and excitement and joy. I think childhood joy is never materialistic, is it? It is about mm. riding your bike. It is about kicking a football. It is about playing with your friends. So... I think I look back at it now and and I recognise how hard my mum must have worked, how difficult it must be and must have been. And the more I get involved with projects like um, the full-time meals with Marcus Rashford and, um, and things to do with fair share and being asked to do charitable stuff and you recognise how difficult um, my mum's life must have been, how difficult it, it must have been for us as kids. Like, you know, but childhood innocence is such a lovely thing to look back I think as a grown up you look back at it and go it must be so difficult and it wasn't difficult it was amazing mm -hmm. like you look back it was really good fun you know I love it and I, you know I wouldn't change a single bit of it and I help I also think it helps define you as a person and I also think that now when I find myself in a very lucky and privileged position like I understand I can see I get the backgrounds I've been there I know it I see when you, the, those people are going through the issues that they're facing the daily grind of proper decisions that people are making between eating and heating or you know they're real real decisions that people are having to make that I know my mum went through that I recognize and I understand and friends that I grew up with and so I do have a compassion and understanding which is why we try to be heavily involved with it and that background I think does root you into your foundations of the future of who you are as a human mm -hmm. being and how, it, how, how you build up I think that compassion and understanding is so important so what was your, the first meal you remember what was your mum's favourite meal that you, she made I mean there's loads of different things that she I mean she was never she was she's a good cook but she was it wasn't like I didn't learn to cook at home when my mum was making apple pies and whatever it just wasn't that house mm. do you know what I mean it mm. was like fish finger sandwiches and, and maybe a pot noodle or sometimes you know Finder's crispy pancakes and potato waffles you know it's yeah. kind of but I, I remember 
on a Thursday, she used to make spaghetti bolognese. And it would be the same as everybody else. You fry the onions and the garlic, you put the mince in and tomato puree and a tin of tomatoes and you cook it out with some dried herbs and whatever. But, you know, my mum would leave, we'd always have it the day, the next day. So she'd leave it a day. So that maturing in flavour was always like something that she'd learned to do from her mum. And you make it one day and look forward to the next day. And that was, that's kind of the real first memory of cooking cooking something and also an understanding of maturing of flavors and things improving mm. so that, that that kind of that chemical process that reaction and that also the fact that good food takes time it's not instant you know though the, all those sort of things i think are probably again are a foundation that as a 14 year old when you're making those sort of things you don't see that's probably building a little building block into what became or is my the future and my, my chosen career then your dad got multiple sclerosis when you were six. Yeah. How, how did you find out and how did that affect you? So uh, I found out, um, I kind of, I, I found out by someone at school told me, like a, a friend, oh, no. uh, like someone at school. But it was kind of, it's like kids do, like parents would talk, someone would have said like something. And then, right. and so then I asked the question, but it was, to be honest, the multiple sclerosis affected our lives much more after my mum and dad had split up. So they split up when I was 11. He he moved out of the house when I think I was 11 years old and my brother would have been eight. Um, and then the illness constantly deteriorated. So my mum and dad didn't have the, the, the strongest uh, of relationships by that point anyway. And then I think the illness compounded into issues, but I don't think, I don't think necessarily he was the, 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 the best husband that you could be irrespective of the illness. Mm. And then, he was then, he went into a care home and that process between 11 and he passed away, died when I was 18. So that those seven years were quite, seeing somebody disappear into an illness, it, I mean, it, it was very sad, but also they're all growing process. It's, it's life and I, like mm. I'm, I'm quite lucky that I can look at it. It's a, it hasn't really affected my life or the same as my brother, they're processes that help build you as characters, you know, mm. and you can't, as kids, you can't do anything to solve the problem. You, you're there, yeah. you're there just witnessing what's happening and what's going around you. So Did you, you build a thicker skin and you build a, an understanding and you get to a point of, well, this is just, this is the situation. There mm. much you can, you can't, you can't do anything about it. We just got to work it out and, and go with it. Did you make you much more self-sufficient or did you have to spend quite a lot of time caring for your dad? No, I, we spent no time caring for him. Right. So we would see him probably, we'd see him every, every Friday evening. We met, That would be Friday night going to see him. But he got to the point where he was so ill, you wouldn't, you couldn't stay overnight. You couldn't, it got to the point where he was just bedbound and he couldn't talk and he couldn't, like it, he was mm. very, very, very ill But towards the end of it. So he came out of, his council flat that he was living in to the point where he had to go into care mm. like proper care yeah. home so but it was um that must have been so hard to go and visit him as a child yeah i mean i look back at it now and i suppose it must have been but it was just the routine of the thing that you do that friday nights you go and see dad for right. quite a few hours and yeah. you, you know and as you get older as you become a teenager you go and sit there and you you talk there's no reaction back and you just i, I mean it was just mm. i don't know i, I think both my mum is an incredible and amazing human being and helped us become very grounded. However, her relationship with our father was, there was never any bitterness that was put onto us. So that when we would go and see him, there was never any, there was never any hatred or anger or mm. upset at the fact that she had been in in a space where she wasn't happy. So for mm. our point of view, she, we would go there and we would do our best to do what we could do and say hello and you know, and then. 
and then you come back it was just part of the routine of our lives I think and it was a, a, it's I think it probably helps build you and set that foundation of who you are as a person but that all came from our mum with the side of the understanding and compassion right off you go you got to go and she'd drop us off you know right. it, it wasn't a there wasn't issues about it and she must have worked incredibly hard, didn't she? So did, yeah. did, do you think that's where you got your 100-hour work ethic? Yeah, I, I think so. I look back at it, both both in terms of hospitality and work ethic, I get it all from my mum. So my mum, obviously, she worked as a secretary for the council, and then she had a job in the evening washing up two or three days a week. So, you know, it was quite a busy... I mean, it was a full-on... We were known as, what's in the time, as latchkey kids. Like, you would come yeah. in and let yourself in and, and cook yourself tea and do whatever else. So, yeah, she, her work ethic has been amazing. But also, in terms of that hospitality, we had... I mean, it was a it was a very, very small house. But my mum worked with an open-door policy that it doesn't matter, whoever... So most of the kids, they'd hang out or they'd hang out in a... In a we had, like, a little garage at the bottom of the estate where there'd be, like, a load of them that were all together, and we, we would hang out in a garage that would be like our den and what so other parents would know kind of where we were there was an area where we would hang out kind of like a bridge that we'd all hang under but that was around the corner from our house so it was all you look back at it now from other parents point of view they go oh they where where so and so they round jackie's prob probably yeah. you know most of the time that's where we would be and because you were the older brother, were you the one responsible for cooking? I mean, did you end up cooking them for all the kids in the No, area? not for all the kids, no. no. I, would, I would cook tea. I would cook tea quite often for my brother. We'd come yeah. in from school and, uh, uh, but, I mean, so by cooking tea, I mean I would put fish fingers under the grill like, yeah. or heat up baked beans, you know, and make toast. You know, that, that was... But, but it did was, you I, start being more creative? Or is that when you... Yeah, I think so. I think you probably, I, you know, you should put things like curry powder in baked beans and you used to play around with stuff and, and, and just... I think it was probably the first idea that, with a bit of effort and energy, that f the great thing about being a chef and, and food is there's always reward for the hard work you put in. There is something <laughs> at the end it. of it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So the more you concentrate on making something better, the better it's going to taste, the better the, the reward. And I think that's something that now I see, but it wasn't, I don't think I wasn't paying any attention to it as looking at it as a career. Yeah. When did you decide then that you actually wanted to be a chef? Because you started as a child actor, didn't you? Yeah, kind of. Like, so my mum took us to myself and my friend. I left school at, I was the youngest in the year, so I left school when I was 15. And then between the ages of 16 and 18, it was kind of like dossiers. We were supposed to be on a YTS scheme, but I, 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 it was just, it just wasn't for me. And school was, um, the education system at that point was set up very much of looking at paper, reading the words, remembering them, and then sitting down and repeating it in an exam. And it's kind of like, it wasn't really, for me, it wasn't vocational learning. It wasn't engaging. It wasn't about, I, I'm much more of a practical, hands-on, do-something person. Whereas I think the education system at that point was all about remembering things, and which, you know, has worked for years. However, I think it, it has very much changed and adapted now into people trying to embrace all sorts of different people's understanding of how to get on and get through in life. So I, I didn't hate school. I quite enjoyed being there, but I didn't really engage in the educational side of it. Um, mm -hmm. But it was weird because I always knew I'd be all right and I, I just needed to find what it was. And my mum took myself and my best friend at that time on a Sunday to a, a youth theatre. And I mean, he was, you know, very outgoing, loved being 
that kind of actory person. So we went, really quite enjoyed it. And I ended up, there was an agent came to see somebody else in, a, in one of these little shows that we did. And then they asked if I'd like to be on their books. And I said, yeah, or yeah, why not? I mean, yeah, all right. And then within like two weeks after that, I was filming a Christmas special of Miss Marple. It was just, it all happened quite Amazing. weirdly. Quite, it was just one of the, but it wasn't really for me. I got to be honest, it wasn't, it wasn't what I was sewn up to do. I, I hadn't thought of it ever. And it was just like quite, it was quite bizarre. I didn't, um, I love the arts and I, I, I love whether it's live music and I love movies and acting and I love painting, sculpture, whatever. I, I'm hugely embracing it. But from, from an actor's point of view and someone who acts, I think it's, um, I, I could never get into your day job pretending to be somebody else. I quite like, right. it's hard enough trying to be yourself. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? It wasn't quite, I, I couldn't quite. And being so, and a chef is sort of acting in a different way, isn't it? You're on a stage, you're almost like the script writer and you're the producer and you're the actor. Uh, I suppose that's one way of looking at it. I think what you're doing is there is an event going on rather than a performance. And I think that there's slightly two different ways of looking at it. You're creating something that's happening and you're creating atmosphere and energy, but we're not performing. I look at being a chef as a trade. Like in, and I talk about it with my wife quite a lot. We have this argument quite a bit because, you know, her, her being an artist, she is creative, but she's creative with products. She, she's a sculptor, not a painter. So she she creates three-dimensional images out of different methodology of working, whether it's carving, whether it's casting. But from a food point of view, I see it as a trade, they're all building blocks. Their understanding of layers of flavor and texture and acidity and salt and spice, and you know, they're all things that you build together. So how do you construct a plate? So I view it as, as you grow as a chef, you start off as the kind of like the laborer that's carrying the bricks. And then you start becoming a bit more of a brick layer because you're putting, you're being told where to put the bricks. And then as you develop and grow and you understand, then you start being able to build and understand how to build a wall, then slowly onto a house. And then you become an architect that's trying to control and you do the, go with the design process that you then almost stand back and then you hand it over to the builders. Do you, do you know what I mean? So, yeah. the, so it, it's as you grow through your career. It, 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 to me, it's very similar to a, it's a trade and it's almost like a building trade. Mm. And the first time you met your wife, she asked to borrow three pounds for the stripper, didn't she? Is oh, that I, the, what happened? So <laughs> she did, yeah. The, her first sentence to me is, give me three pounds for the stripper. So I was like... <laughs> so what's uh, the context uh, here? So, um, <laughs> so I was living in a flat in London with five lads and one of them was was my best mate and his brother and his brother was working as a technician for Sir Anthony Caro who's one of Britain's greatest sculptures and Beth was also TIG welder for Sir Anthony Caro so she come from the Royal College of Art and was working in bronze and casting and welding as a technician for him at that point in his studio in, in North London and it was Tim's birthday so I ended up getting an, an evening off and I wasn't in all honesty, I, I thought I really could do with do, be not doing this. But we went out that night. I met her in, in uh, a comedy club in North London, in Camden. And uh, I walked through the door and, and this mouthy northern girl <laughs> just went, give me three pounds for the stripper. So, so I was like, uh, yeah, all right. And, and then like we ended up, I mean, I'm kind of attracted to quite out there, loud, self-confident people i you know i like being around those sort of people so i thought uh, who's this uh, quite you know we ended up chatting and pretty much been together since then so you know she's yeah that, that was that was her first sentence to me <laughs> and you proposed after six weeks didn't you so i didn't know oh she proposed she, exactly she proposed right. she proposed to me yeah so, so you were very much double at then the whole way through 
Yeah, no, I was just too scared to say no. To <laughs> so, so. <laughs> now, I mean, we were, I, at that point I was working, I mean, I, was, I worked in a basement kitchen just off Leicester Square for about three years. It was amazing. And we were, you know, Beth was working for Santini Caro and then she was doing some work back up in Stoke-on-Trent for a bit. And then she would be back down into London. And it's, it's, she was doing a lot of, of work, art work. And then... Um, we used to go out on a Friday or a Saturday night when I finished work at like half 12, 1 a.m. and then go out, because you're right in the center of London, you go out and then get a night bus home or a, a taxi and then, you know, because the restaurant would be closed on a Saturday morning or a Sunday, so you could you could do 5 a.m. going home and then getting back, you could still get four or five hours sleep before you all get back up again, <laughs> which was great. So it's kind of like every weekend, which was brilliant. I mean, we, we loved it. And then I think Beth bought into somebody as well that wasn't living their life through her as well like I'm mm. you know I'm going out with this girl that's a great artist and I'm just like someone who was like yeah I know you're a great artist however I'm cooking so we both tied together completely in in our thinking although we think very differently about lots of things but I mean that creates well sometimes it creates tension but also sometimes it creates a great kind of atmosphere of, of conversation mm. and those points and it was always really really interesting that there's two parallel careers that are running side by side with each other whilst completely intertwined and it, it, it became quite obvious fairly early on that this is this is pretty good this this mm. is this is good so but yeah so Beth asked me to marry her oh, after six brilliant. weeks yeah. and then you started the <laughs> hand and flowers and did that put incredible pressure on the relationship that must have been so tough when you're starting a new restaurant and quite a brave restaurant it, as well it does i mean i look back at it we still work together now so beth mm. the, the business is much bigger there's a lot of issues to deal and iron out with on a daily running of people spaces that, that I, I do it all i do all of that with a with a great management team the financial decisions, the decisions of making what we're going to do next, how we're going to restructure that, the conversations with the accountant. I mean, Beth does that every day. So she just goes, okay, this isn't working or that's not making enough money or the profit's not there. I'm the doer and the solver. Beth has a look at that and then then she gets on with being a mum and working very hard for a couple of big shows later in this year. So she's, she, but she, we're very lucky. We've got to the point where she, she basically works from home, her office, for businesses at home but also she's got a lovely big studio and a gallery space and a whatever else so so you know we've worked very hard to get to that point where she can operate in a, in her world in in the mm. right way and we can operate this but yeah those early times are always very very difficult i mean Beth was running front of house. Now she used to run, her experiences was running bars in Stoke-on-Trent when she was a student and she took a year out before she went to the Royal College of Art where she ran a restaurant in Greece. You know, she, it was a party restaurant, she was having fun, but she she run a restaurant. So she was front of house manager and I was cooking and it was kind of like that, that difference between husband and wife and front of house manager and chef. Mm. It, it, sometimes they don't always mix you've got to remember where the lines are that when mm. you when you're saying something to the front of house manager that isn't always the most professional of like this is how it has it like <laughs> then you also have to remember that actually you're your wife, and you wouldn't talk to your wife like that normally so why are you doing it so you're trying to find mm. those those parallels and the and the barriers and the and the sort and of dual what, identity yeah. exactly yeah. so it does put pressure on a bit and also you know that we 
risked everything yeah. to, for a small little tiny pub where we mm. lived above it in one little bedroom myself and beth and two dogs and the next door was the tiny little office and next door to that was the barman mm. like a, like it's a really small little space and so it was quite an intense particularly the first year before we we moved out we bought a small little house after the first year it was successful enough for us to be able to put a deposit down for a small house and which, can you which remember was great. that day when you got those two michelin stars because it was extraordinary and also because two it was stars a was it unbelievable was like, yeah did, what did you and beth feel because it must have been for both of you really in the end wasn't yeah it? so the one star was incredible we got that was after the temp for 10 months of opening we got a phone call from uh, another michelin star chef that it had been leaked on the internet at midnight and he said you better go and have a look so uh, which was amazing and then the two star so that was 2000 and 11 for the 2012 guide so we've been open six years and we've been pushing very very hard re reinvesting rebuilding new kitchens staff and just everything we've just been trying to create was was just reinvested into the business we never expected it to come we never expected it to happen but there were a lot of the cooking we felt very confident that we were at a level where where we are we're we're a very good one star here mm -hmm. like you know maybe who knows and then the mission guide came, they actually filmed it on the day so that, that, that someone came with a camera and a letter, then you open the letter and then they put it on light. Like, so we, we found out in the morning know. opening the letter, which was incredible. However, Beth was not there, Beth was in hospital. So she'd had a, she had a small operation. So Beth was in hospital at that time. So when we found out, I had, you know, I rang her, like it was, but it was amazing. Yeah. And like, it was an incredible, yeah, it's an incredible day. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, the proudest day for us and the whole team on that day was just amazing. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, the chef Tom Kerridge. There'll be more from us after this. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, the chef Tom Kerridge. You once said that you it's very hard to get through a Saturday night without a sense of fear, that there's a sort of terror that there's going to be some disaster or something go wrong. Do you still feel like that or do you yeah. ever get over it? No, all the time. There's always a fear that the phone's not going to ring. There's always a fear that... You know, no one's going to book. There's always a fear that uh, what we're getting right or wrong. Uh, yeah, I think, but I think that drives every everyone who owns a business. I mean, the fear of failure is the thing that keeps you going. Mm. I think the moment you think that you've made it is right. where where you rest on your laurels and it stops. And there's been times within our businesses where you go, nah, okay, and you ignore them for a little bit, and you ignore them for too long because you're concentrating on something else. You, you have to suddenly go back and pick up the other one. It is like spinning plates that you know, like you used to see like. I don't know, 80s talent shows where someone was spinning plates mm. on, a, on a stick that you go, the one at the end that they've forgotten about for ages, you have to run back <laughs> yeah. and give that spin again. And, and it does feel, it, it is like that. And it's kind What's of, been I, your worst disaster then? Oh my God. I mean, we, we've What's had a blanket now. <laughs> to be honest, nothing has gone wrong, right? Even if it's gone wrong and cost a load of money and we've made massive mistakes and we've lost cash on that and this has been a disaster and that's been, they're not disaster, they're learning curves. You wouldn't be, able, they're all building blocks. It's the same thing, but it, I suppose looking back at, you know, my dad being ill or my mum and dad splitting up, all those things that you, you can sit there and you can wallow in it or you can go, okay, well, I'll learn from that. Mm -hmm. And 
and what happens with age as you get older and more experienced I mean age is the wrong word I think it's experience the more experience you have in something you realise that none of it actually really really matters mm. it does change right now it feels like you're in an eye of a storm and something's a nightmare but in a year's time you'll look back a bit having learnt it and come through it the other side so but you can only do that you can only learn that with experience mm. can't you and do you think cooking is a way of looking after people and that's partly driven by the fact that you had to look after people when you were a boy and that you grew up doing that you had to be very self-reliant no I think there's a bigger thing I think hospitality I, th I think that always the best restaurants and the best chefs and the best front of house it's always focused around generosity now generosity uh, like a, a sense of warmth and welcoming mm. and it doesn't matter whether that's a little coffee shop over the road that you go and get your coffee shop every day and then they go hello how are you yeah. Yeah. and then maybe you've been there every day for three months and, and they might go that one's on us today just yeah. you never expect it yeah. but just that tiny those tiny little things of where hospitality is great and it doesn't matter how much it costs. Like things could be some of the most expensive meals I've had have been incredible and amazing. But you don't care about the money because you've been made to feel like you've had an amazing time. And there is a little extra thing, maybe like something for you when you leave. They go here. There's some little box of chocolates to take away. Like you think that's amazing because you focus on that that tiny little part that's actually cost the business nothing apart from kindness mm -hmm. is generosity and hospitality. You, you've also given them a load of money but you know, that, <laughs> bit, that bit is also like this, this is and that's what restaurants and coffee shops and hospitality should be about it is about making sure that people have an amazing time feel that they, yes value for money is a big thing but I think if you eat in any restaurant right and that anybody owns no one wants the customer to have a bad time. Like when customers go, this was rubbish and this is awful and they write on TripAdvisor and blah, blah. Restaurants don't do that on purpose. We don't want, <laughs> we don't want to make it rubbish for yeah. you. What we want genuinely, even if you walked into a high street pizza place, the chef that's cooking that, the waiter that's giving you the food, the manager that's welcomed you in and take it, and the person behind the bar that's taking your drinks order, is not trying to get it wrong. Mm. That we're all trying <laughs> to get it right. We genuinely want to make sure that we've got it right and you've had a nice time. But that comes at a huge cost to you. So you have to work mm. incredibly hard. And I mean, in the early years, it sounded just shattering. And you, know, you are, found yeah. that you had to drink quite a lot, didn't you? And, I did, yeah. No, I had uh, a big issue with you know, you then you, it, It's not great on your health. And, and did you suffer, do you think, in that way? You just, that you're constantly thinking of other people and constantly working and you actually forget about yourself in some way uh, yeah a lot of ways but at the same point I don't regret a single bit of it because again it defines who you are it helps build your character I am a character that has a personality that everything has to be 100% and it always has to be can it be better what can I do and if I'm going to do it I'm going to do it more than everybody mm -hmm. else I have to do it like I have that got to do I just got to do everything bigger larger like just just because I that is where I my brain ends up mm -hmm. being focused on and Honestly, if you worked eight hours a day, slept for eight hours, and then eight, had eight hours a day of like downtime or chill, or, like to me that sounds like the dullest, most boring. <laughs> like it really, I, like I honestly, I, it would be like what? Definitely. I mean, that's when not... did you take your last holiday then? Easter. Oh, you did take so, so yeah, I've, we've got to the point. As particularly now that we've got a son, like it goes, you, you kind of refocus and you, you mm. kind of you have to live your life a little bit through them. Although our world is, we came back from Easter and I haven't seen him all week because I've I've been. I'm up and out the door by six six thirty, and the last five nights in a row, I haven't been, but I haven't got back into bed till two a.m. So it's kind of like a four, like it's a kind mm. of. So we're up and out and in, like, but then we'll have the weekends, bank holiday weekend tomorrow. We're going back to Gloucester. We have the opportunity to go and watch 
a big rugby match, Gloucester versus Bath, big game, sitting in one of the boxes with us and hanging out or going to see his cousin. He was like, no, I'll go see my cousin. <laughs> like, like, do you know what I mean? It's a, but those opportunities today, we, we, we work very, very, he has extremes, you know, we'll go, we'll go to the Formula One this year, we'll go to, go to major football matches, we'll go to England rugby games, we've been to, like all of these things, he get, and he gets to, our Easter break was in Abu Dhabi. It wasn't just like, it was like, come on, we'll get on a nice flight, we'll go to Abu Dhabi, we'll chill out the after sunshine. So there are, there, it's extremes. He's, his life is pretty different, mm. I suppose, to most of his schoolmates. And, and to yours when you were little. Oh, wait, yeah, oh my God, mm. it's so different. Like, uh, this morning, like, we live in a really nice house on the river, on the River Thames, right? So we, co- we woke up this morning, and outside, there's a kind of like a, a, a rowing school that's further, just a little bit down the line. And Team GB are training there in the mornings now. And the, you get up in the morning and then there's four or five boats getting out with the other guys that are with the megaphones or whatever else at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. And I said, this morning, there was a prime example, I said, AC, look, look out the window, look at them. One of the girls that was in the boat, she gave a little wave up to the house and he waved back. Yeah. But these are, these are people that are training for the Olympic. You're waking up this morning at 7 o'clock looking at Team GB starting a training regime. Amazing. Like, I was waking up seven o'clock in the morning, like opening the, the windows from my school, and the, the other house was right there. And you can see in somebody else's bedroom. Mm. It's kind of like it's a very, very different life that we're waking up. He's yeah. waking up and watching, you know, a Team GB start rowing. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of it's so different. Our world is, but his, but I, I keep thinking, oh my god, we got to make sure that he's not spoiled. He's not a spoiled child. We've got to make sure that we can try and reiterate to him that hard work is about where everything is like this is what it's got to be you know this is how you get anywhere in life but it, it's about the graft and the work ethic it's not it doesn't matter where you come from but at the same point like it's not his fault who his parents are yeah it's not his it's not his fault that we've built something mm. do you know what i mean mm. it's, so so it is it is going to be a full case of trying to find that that balance mm. between what he sees as life and how I grew up when I was his mm. age. Yeah, it's two very different things. Mm. I mean, who knows? It might all go wrong yet. Yeah? I might do something really stupid and lose a whole lot. And before we know it, he, lives exa- he grows up exactly <laughs> the same. There was one point, though, where things really spiralled out of control, didn't they, for you? That they were you were drinking a lot, you were yeah, on I mean, weight. What, was there a moment where you thought, actually, this has got out of control, I've got to stop? Yeah, it comes in an age thing, and so it's approaching your 40th birthday, and yeah. I think I think that there's a point of reflection for many people when you get there. You're, like, invincible in your 20s and your 30s. They're quite definitive of, like, grafting for career positions and what you're doing and doing really well. But I think as you approach 40, I think 40 becomes a point where you... One of my mates put it, he's going, it's like, that's, that's halfway to death. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, we're halfway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you go, halfway, and then you go, well, this is where we've got to that, and then where do I... And you suddenly reflect on what the the rest of it might be. Yeah. Uh, so it was an aging. It wasn't. There wasn't any. I mean, I'm sure there must have been, but there wasn't any outright health issues. I hadn't gone to a hospital. The doctors hadn't said I hadn't been to the doctor. There was no problem. Like there was no thing. It was just mm. a recognition of the way that I was living my life. Was like, I mean, I am dependent on alcohol here. I am. I, I'm working ridiculous hours. I'm eating just absolute rubbish, and I, and I am living for grafting so hard and then a massive party every night like, <laughs> this is this is non-sustainable mm, like it's yeah. amazing i don't i loved every minute of it and i do miss it like i miss the chaos of it yeah. oh massively i miss the chaos and the mayhem and the fun and the i yeah absolutely miss it all but then at the same point i recognize that i can't and i can't have one of those some people can do that once a month and just have a great yeah. time. I, if i did it once it'd be like smoking again yeah. like if you have one cigarette you know you're smoking addictive. 20 yeah exactly yeah. i go i know that i couldn't do it if i just decided to fall off the wagon tonight i know that then 
then it'd be Saturday, Sunday. Like right. sun, Sunday would be amazing. Did you drink it's nothing bank holiday, now? so let's get on it all day Sunday. It'd be yeah. like it would be chaos. Do you literally drink nothing now then? Nothing, yeah, not drinking anything from nine years. Right. And you lost about twelve stone, didn't you? I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I lost a huge amount of weight. I went, I swam every day. I needed something else to then focus. And then I decided, well, what am I going to do? So I started swimming. I used to swim a mile every day. And then, and then I changed it up a little bit. I, I mean, that w- went on for about three years. And then I went through a process of what should I do now? And then I went into a gym. And then I've, but it is all based around like gym or swim or. So I'm not. I, I'm constantly, I, like I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't like the only thing that I do is like swear and drink coffee. And that's the only, that's the only thing. <laughs> only vices. Yeah, that's it exactly. So you just go. So it's all focused around all, all the graft and the drive is all pretty focused into whatever I can do into a gym and, and in work. But it must have been incredibly difficult when the pandemic hit because then all that stopped. And you actually, you called it a really shit holiday, which I thought <laughs> yeah. was actually quite yeah. a good expression. In fact, yeah. my producer and I just say it's exactly how you feel. It's that yeah. sense, isn't it, of actually you weren't, you know, you thought you weren't going to have to do too much cooking, but you end up having to do quite a lot and there's a lot of housework and you think it's going to be relaxing, but it isn't. Is that no. how you felt that you had, you know, all your operations stopped overnight almost? Yeah, moment. it was very, very difficult. And again, because we talk about earlier the, the hospitality it's always like um it's like a vocation and you can't take it away you can't you can't do this on a zoom call you know many other businesses yeah. were, were kind of able to operate through zoom calls and microsoft teams and meetings and talk about how they're going to but for us it was you know you pull everything away so so we became quite active in the way that um things that we did for charitable work that that was a big thing so we, we set up a, a charity called meals from marlow where it raised well hundreds of thousand pounds and, and fed nearly 200,000 people and you know it, it was all done through furloughed staff that were volunteering we had a great big event company event space that was up in um, High Wycombe that was then sat doing nothing so we fed frontline NHS workers uh, and vulnerable and needy and it's still running now you know and it and it was a it was a great thing to be involved with it, it gave us a focus and something to do and something that was quite proactive mm because most people that work in hospitality are doers. But yeah, and I also quite enjoyed the challenge of the pandemic in a really odd way. I like the business challenge. I like that there's this huge challenge in front of you, but you don't know that there is actually an exit. Do, do you know what I mean? And that was that. I, so I quite liked the fact that we were entering into a, a challenge, but I didn't know, you had no idea how it's going to come out of mm. it, the other side. So uh, the, the risk of it is terrifying. The risk of it is terrifying. Mm. And that debt burden that, our business is under now because you know every business pretty much took siblings loans to be able to exist and be able to mm. and those need repaying now and they're being everything's being repaid and it's no problem you know it's all of that but there's many other businesses without the revenue that now will feel hugely under pressure because you know there's a big debt burden mm. and hospitality operations it doesn't matter how busy they are or how expensive you think they are they don't operate a great deal of profit many of them just break even mm. many of them make a loss year on year on year and if the ones that are making a profit, they're probably only making a profit of around about 10%. So 10% is not massive. The moment that gets chipped away, then all of a sudden, even busy, expensive places are not making great deals mm. of money. They're turning over big money, but the costs that are associated with hospitality are huge, which is why, I mean, you hear about it all the time, two out of three restaurants closed within the first mm. year. Like if they were money-making printing machines, everybody would be doing it, wouldn't they? They don't, yeah. you know, they are. They're, they're very, they're incredibly difficult to run. But if you get them running and they're running properly and once it's all spinning and it's great, they're wonderful, they're exciting, they're amazing, they're brilliant places to be. So it, again, it comes back to it being a vocational and fun mm. space to, to mm. hang out. But 
yeah, it, it, they are quite terrifying places to be in charge of as a business mm. owner. And how did you meet Marcus Rashford? Why did you decide to get involved in that campaign? So Marcus, um, we were doing some work with the national food strategy with Henry Dimbleby. So on that task force, there's some some of the big supermarkets and some of the team there, the fair share um, charitable guy, they, they cross over into working with Marcus because Marcus was doing a lot of stuff with the fair share stuff. So we had a quick conversation, had a conversation about, and we were talking about our background to Henry, my background, where we talked about earlier, which is very, very similar to Marcus's. Yeah. And now I, I'm a big football fan. Funny enough, I'm a big Manchester United fan. <laughs> I, was, I was there last night. So, so, um, and he said, oh, mate, I'll put you in touch with Kelly, who helps run, run stuff with Marcus. So actually, I put together the idea of this full-time meals campaign of going let's put together 52 recipes you know between myself and marcus our social outreach is great you know we could uh, use my skill set to cook tin stuff things that people get from food banks things that um, marcus main focus was driving the uplifting value of the healthy start vouchers so he pressurized the government to move that for up to four pounds 25 from three pounds 50 and it was like uh, how do we get this noise out there so we created between myself and Marcus, a load of recipes that he cooks, I cooks, we put together that to try and get it as many people um, that are in need of budget-friendly recipes. So it, it was all about trying to create noise and energy for the most vulnerable, vulnerable and people in society. Because it must make you so angry when you hear about people in food banks being turned down. They, 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 they can't you know, cook the potatoes because they haven't got the energy to heat them on it. Yeah, it's, it's 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 awful, isn't it? These are these are real life decisions mm. that people are having to make. That you know, it's all well and good. Uh, so, what's your best recipe for them? What do you what do so you we, suggest they work? The, the best thing that we put together, and I love it very much, is it's a really good fun thing. And it's we cook an omelet in a kettle, like you literally you whisk How the eggs and put, you, you whisk the eggs up, but um uh, and put in grated cheese in the seasoning. You put it in a plastic seal sandwich bag, and then you put it into the kettle. The boiling so the sandwich bag you turn it so you boil the kettle twice with it in and then leave it for three minutes and then you have a and a, a, a open the bag and the omelets cook so it was like this is you don't even have to have an oven this might even be for yeah. people that are living in temporary accommodation that are, you know that and you just go okay that you can cook yourself an omelette in a kettle and for those sort of things and when we tried cooking it for marcus actually we did that around his house the funny thing he didn't have a kettle <laughs> just like, so i bought him a kettle from john lewis and sent it to him he's like he didn't have a kettle you look at how does how does he make tea yeah because he had one of them posh taps oh, that get the hot water out so yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, so he's the other we did now. make a very good cup of tea so, uh, so however you any meals Has yeah, he learned we, yeah we did a couple of things around his house he cooked and we did a thing over over we videoed him over at him cooking online with me whilst during the pandemic when no one could get to anywhere um but yeah he, i mean he's been he's he's a magical wonderful brilliant person particularly when it comes to these sort of things engaging with the people that his background is exactly the same you know and we look yeah. at that we, we're both in very privileged positions in it but also he's worked incredibly hard to get where he's got. Mm. You know, you don't just become an England international and play for a Premier League football club by not being bothered. Mm. You know, he's worked very hard to get there. But when we when you have his social outreach and um and then, you know, he tapped into a skill set that we have that we you put together and you know, one of the videos, Louis Tomlinson cooked a video for us and it, it got had one point eight million views of him making a fish finger sandwich, you know, these these sort of things. But it, it was great. It, it's been incredible to be involved in, been incredible. 
And do you still cook for Beth and for your son or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or so does on she a weekend, no, well, she'll cook during a week. Like this week, she'd have cooked Ace's tea every night. So, uh, but um, tonight, I'm hoping that I'm there tonight. And then this weekend, you know, I'll, I'll try and I'll be off this weekend. So, so what are you going to cook him? This weekend, who knows? Actually, Saturday we're not there. We're in Gloucester, so we're we're off to a big rugby match, and then. Uh, we'll probably go. We'll take me mum out for tea to a cheesy pub somewhere around the corner from her. Uh, Sunday, Sunday, who knows? Bank holiday, we'll probably well, um, a barbecue. We'll do something. We'll do it. You know, I like doing a barbecue. He loves a barbecue. I mean, he's six years old. He doesn't love a sausage mm. off a barbecue. It's great, isn't it? Or a burger. You know, that's it's standard for everybody. Who knows? Some of his mates may come over. We don't know. But it will be very, very simple, easy things. The same as everybody else. And like you were talking about, there's only a few things you talk, you cook at home. That repertoire that you have. It's kind of the same that I have at home. Like, I'm not going to start suddenly cooking. It's not cooking. the duck, duck custard tarts. No, it's not. No, no and I'm not sadly. suddenly going to start making Moroccan-style chicken at home. <laughs> Just in case he don't like it, yeah. you know, as he yeah. grows up. And these are one of the things that also, back to the full-time meals um, campaign and the recipes in that, there's 52. Some kids will like them, you know, or will it like like at least five of them? Look mm-hmm. through the recipes. There's no, there, there's no point. A lot of these people who we needed to hit with this, they're not going to suddenly start being adventurous with their food. They're going to cook because spending the last two pounds on trying to, cost together a meal for uh, 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 for yourself and two kids you're not going to risk the fact that they mm. don't like it you mm. know you're not going to cook something and they go no i don't like it and you haven't got any money and you haven't got anything else so there have to be dishes that people will have a go at cooking that are substantial that are filling rather than being experimental and oh you know super healthy yeah. they have to be it might be the one meal that the children eat mm. and so it's you know you go through safety repertoires don't you we're all the same Mm. so looking back to yourself when you were six which is the same age as your son now yeah um and your dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis what advice would you give to yourself what do you wish you'd known then that you know now nothing no different i wouldn't change a single thing like i'm but you know i i really wouldn't change a single thing i mean it would be nice if i could uh it would I, to me, I, there isn't a single thing. They're all experiences. You know, I, I wish I'd been better at football at school. I wish I, I wish I concentrated more in a particular lesson. I wish, but they're all daft things. They're nothing. There's nothing. There's not a single thing I would change about the journey that I've been on. Like, and they're all, they're all ups and downs. They, they, you know, there's some massive issues. Issues with alcohol. Issues with being overweight. Issues with the graft and the working hard. And the, uh, but they're not issues. They're learning curves. They, they build, they build characters. They build you. They build you as human beings. You know, there's, there, there isn't, there isn't a single thing I'd change. There's periods in your life that you wish you weren't going through, like, I, I, but if you don't do them, then you're not. It's not another layer to your personality it's not a, like someone once explained to me like a circle of comfort zone that if you're in this little circle of your comfort zone that you're never going to get any bigger you have to step outside your comfort zone every single time and the, the more uncomfortable you make yourself and I've now learned now I like making myself uncomfortable I like going into a space of not knowing what's coming next I quite like fear. I quite yeah yeah I do quite like fear I quite like almost aggressive business meetings. I quite like putting myself in positions with major CEOs of companies or positions that, that I don't agree with, where I think back and, you know, if you're, if 
when I was much younger, if you're a twenty-year-old, you'd just sit there and go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. "I quite like the fact that no, I don't agree with that." I, I quite like, I quite like awkward silences as well, and like I quite like of say, saying something and then just not having to fill the gap, seeing if someone else will. I quite, I find all of that quite exciting. I like, I like. Why is that? Do you think? Probably I haven't because I haven't got the chaos of not drinking anymore. I okay. quite I quite like the chaos of drinking, going, not <laughs> yeah. knowing what's happening next and what am I going to do and what, what's going to happen over there. I quite like so I quite like being in a position of going okay. Well, let's see what. But, so it's almost being out of control. It's, it's... Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. I like... What would you actually cook for yourself now when you were seven? If you went back to Gloucester, yeah. is there one thing you'd say? Look, you just got to taste this because this is absolutely sensational. I yeah, I didn't really get into. Um, things like cured meats and pâtés and cheeses and stuff until I was much older, because they were all really expensive. Do you know what I mean? It was never the thing that my mum would buy. You know, it would always be, you know, it would be corned beef out of a tin or, uh, like, Dairy League. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It was a real go-safe cheddar, you know, not even strong stuff. Because, again, we talked about earlier, it's what you could afford. I wish, because they're quite... The moment that you get into, like, strong cured meats and big-flavoured cheeses and... It, because you're then progressive into their big adult flavors, their adult things. So I wish I, that would have been a nice kind of process to try earlier. I think that would have been it's a good one to get. I try it with AC still. They don't. They, it's 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 not his thing. <laughs> like just cheese is fine. Just ham is fine. He quite likes a little bit of like salami, but not like anything <laughs> like not anything too much. So, but yeah, I wish I kind of got into them earlier. Tom Kerridge, thank you very much for talking to us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the chef Tom Kerridge. The series producer is Ben Mitchell. Listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app, or you can download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, which features insights from our interviews with guests such as Brian Cox, Eddie Marson and Angela Rayner. We'll be back with more Past Imperfect next week. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.